0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. Amen. Last week we heard Jesus tell the well-known parable of the sower and the seed. A sower goes out to sow his seed. Some fell on the road and were eaten by birds. Some fell on rocky soil and had no roots. Some fell among thorns and never bore any fruit, and some fell on good soil and bore an abundance of fruit. The disciples then asked Jesus what the parable meant, and Jesus told them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables. That seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this, the seed is the word of God. And then Jesus explains what the parable means. Now, this is quite the honor that Jesus bestows upon his disciples, isn't it? The disciples, like everyone else, shared in a certain bewilderment, why did Jesus just tell us a story about a sore in a seed? What's the reference? What does this have to do with the message he usually teaches us? How does this help anyone understand the kingdom of God? The disciples, no less than the great multitude who followed Jesus, were in the dark. But what privilege they enjoy, when not only are they told the meaning of the parable, but Jesus singles them out as quite special to you it has been given. It's a privilege enough to be told the meaning, but to know that you are getting unique information that isn't told to just anybody, well, this is quite the honor. But why? Why them? Why was it given them to know these mysteries and hidden from others? Why some and not others? This question has plagued many Christian hearts and minds, and it has been the sticky question that many scoffers have raised to mock our blessed faith. Why some and not others? If God is all-powerful and all-gracious, why doesn't he just save everyone? Why are many called and few chosen? Why are the mysteries revealed to some? Why are some given to know the grace of God and believe it, while they are hidden from others who seem thus destined to be left in the silent darkness? Dear Christians, the answer is so simple. It is offensively simple and obvious and puts to shame such contemptuous questions as these. The answer is found in the verse right after Jesus told the parable. Then his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? So why was it given to them to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God? Because they asked. They asked this wonderful and simple catechism question. What does this mean? And then Jesus told them, Those who insist on asking why some and not others are asking a disrespectful question that will never get an answer. They are putting God on trial, but he is not on trial. They're assuming that God owes an explanation, but God doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. So the proper response to God coming down from heaven, joining our poor sinful humanity by by becoming himself a poor sinless baby, growing up in perfect patience and kindness and obedience to God, his God of love, his eternal Father, living a life as our substitute, showing constant love and fulfilling the law of love that condemned us and exposes us still as loveless sinners, doomed to eternal punishment. The proper response to all of this, to this holy God who thus reveals his holy grace to us, by teaching us what we do not naturally know, and yet what we must learn to know, the proper response is not why some and not others. No. The proper response is to ask for more. To ask for more wisdom. To ask for more instruction and explanation. To ask for more faith. It requires humility of you. It requires you to acknowledge your ignorance and your need to be taught by God. It requires that you say as you were taught in the catechism, what does this mean? And to you, it will be given. Is it possible that Jesus will refuse to tell you? No. He said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. He says, I say to you that if two or three agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. He says, if you abide in me, And my words abide in you. You will ask what you desire. And it shall be done for you. Now, what greater thing can we say to Jesus to take him up on these wonderful promises than this? What does this mean? What greater desire do we have than to know what our future is, what God thinks of us, what will happen to us when we die, whether God forgives us, and, And why? What more pressing desire and fitting request can we have than to seek to know the meaning of God's word? Ask, and God will teach you. He will never refuse to teach you. Ask, and God will not deny you. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, Jesus promises. It is impossible that the mysteries of God will be hidden from you, if you ask for God to reveal them to you. For to ask this question, what does this mean, is for you to ask for faith. It is to ask for faith, because faith always knows two things. Always. Faith knows these two things. Whom it asks, and what it wants. And this is our theme this morning. During this season of Septuagesima, we have reviewed two great themes. We have reviewed how we are saved by grace alone, with the workers in the vineyard. And we have reviewed how we are saved by God's word alone, the sower and the seed, as I just mentioned. Remember the three great solas of the Reformation, grace alone, scripture alone, and today we consider faith alone. How fitting, isn't it? as we prepare for the season of Lent, that we embark on the special season of repentance in preparation for Easter by first reviewing these three topics. This Lent, during our midweek services, beginning next Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, on Ash Wednesday, unless it snows, I'll mention it later, then we'll try to do it on Thursday. You can't miss Ash Wednesday. Besides, we're beginning a very wonderful theme on the Lord's Prayer that will be continuing until Holy Week. And this is especially fitting for us to consider today that faith always knows whom it asks and what it wants. The Lord's Prayer certainly addresses this. But let's take a look at today's Gospel lesson more closely in order to examine faith. Faith alone. Again, Because the theme is worth repeating, faith knows whom it asks, and faith knows what it wants. Jesus tells his disciples, I suppose the same 12 whom he honored so highly in last Sunday's gospel, to you it has been given to know the mysteries of God, but to the rest it is given in parable. But he says today, behold, that is look, we are going up to Jerusalem And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. What a thing to say. This first of all answers the question of who it is whom we ask. We ask the Son of Man, whose coming the prophets foretold in Holy Scriptures, We know whom we ask. More than his coming, they wrote also of his going, of his being delivered to the Gentiles, the Romans who would nail him to a tree. They wrote of how he would be mocked and insulted and treated wickedly and spit upon. They wrote of how he would be tortured and killed. And what is more, they wrote of how he would rise again on the third day, just as we say in the creed, according to the scriptures. That's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. God said thousands of years earlier that it would happen. Now, this is amazing. Talk about, to you, it has been given to know. What a privilege for them to hear this directly from Jesus on their way to Jerusalem, right? He literally tells them, as plainly as can be told, what is going to happen. No parable here at all. But then what do we hear? They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And they did not know the things which were spoken. Why? Because they didn't ask. They asked in their minds and hearts, maybe. They asked how these things could be, no doubt. And they should, and why they should be. Whether it would happen. They asked perhaps among themselves what it meant, but they didn't ask him who spoke, him whom the prophets spoke of, him who said these things would all happen to him. They did not ask Jesus. What does this mean? And so it was hidden from them. The very first thing that faith knows, they remained unclear on. Faith knows whom it asks. If they could not see Jesus as the one who suffers and dies and rises again, then what is the point of asking anything? Immediately after this, a wonderful event is recorded that teaches us how such things may never be hidden from us. In it we find an example of a man who did not judge by the sight of his eyes, by the appearance, as we heard in our Old Testament lesson. And the reason he didn't is because his eyes didn't work. He was blind, he saw nothing. He had no option but to judge what was happening around him and what was happening to him based on what was told him. And in this he had a great advantage. He had no choice but to ask what all the commotion meant. This too was to his great advantage. This is what is recorded. He asked what it meant. What's going on? What does this mean? Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And as soon as he knows who it is, he knows what to ask. Because he knows what he wants. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And the crowd is embarrassed. What does this guy know? He's causing a scene. But the poor man doesn't see. What scene does he care about? He has need and this man is able to help him. He knows whom he is addressing and he won't stop addressing him. It is as St. Paul would later write, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and I am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. And so this poor man, this poor blind man, knew that Jesus could help him. He was not ashamed and would not shut up because he knew whom he was asking. He does not give in to those who ask the wrong questions. He asks no trivia of Jesus. He asks for help, which he himself needs, and mercy, which he himself desires, and he won't stop until he gets it. It's like what we sing in the hymn on Easter, Easter. Faith's strong hand, the rock hath found, grasped it, and will leave it never. So he keeps asking, until Jesus stops and asks him what he wants. Faith knows whom it asks, and faith knows what it wants. The blind man immediately tells Jesus, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus gives him his sight, and then what does he do? He credits his healing to his faith. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. It's the same word. This is what Jesus says about faith. But why such praise of faith? And how can faith do such great things? That sounds like a catechism question too, doesn't it? But faith does not save because it is such a great work any more than water saves because of how wet it is. No, faith saves because of whom it seeks and what it wants from him. And this is why love is greater than faith, as we hear in our epistle lesson. These three abide, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Why? It is because love is the object of faith. God's love is the object of faith. Whatever you aspire toward, in your life of faith, whatever knowledge or virtue or understanding or patience or, or even faith that you desire to have more of, this is the greatest that you direct whatever you have to the love of another. What makes faith salvific, what makes it save you, what gives faith power to open your eyes, as in the case of this poor blind man, relies upon the fact that love is greater than your faith. Because love is the object of your faith. As it is written, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Faith knows whom it asks. Faith knows what it wants. Faith knows Christ. That he is both true God and true man. Faith knows what Christ does. That he suffers, dies, rises again, and even now intercedes as our mediator. For whose sake all our prayers are answered. Faith knows the person of Christ. Faith knows the office and work of Christ. And faith asks, what does this mean? Faith asks why this is so and to what end, for what purpose. And faith receives its answer in Christ. For love's sake, God has love toward you. He loves you with love. And so, he promises this love to fill us too. As we read in Psalm 17, As for me, I will see your face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake in your likeness. It is first love toward us which we pursue. And only then does love, when love is most greatly shown toward us so that our faith can cling to it, that love becomes anything like a virtue within us. It always relies on what God freely gives to us. Therefore, in your suffering, in your confusion, In your ignorance, don't ask, why some and not others? Why me? Why does God permit this or that? Holy Scripture is not a book that teaches you who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. The Bible is a book to you, to teach you how you find a gracious God. And so you ask, what does this mean? Follow the what does this means of the Catechism. Follow through the Ten Commandments and learn the love required of you. Follow through the Creed and learn God's love toward you, and follow through the what does this mean of the Lord's Prayer, and you will find the love that God teaches you daily to seek and request and find, for it will be given. Ask what your suffering means and conclude that you are a sinner and that you deserve what you get. Repent and ask and plead and don't stop asking. Ask in your blindness that the Lord remember you in his kingdom. And what does he say? Today you will see me in paradise, even when you see nothing else besides. As St. Paul says, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far greater, exceeding, and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So see, in the once for all temporary suffering of our Savior Jesus Christ, the things which are eternal for you. Peace with God and everlasting life. And in the meantime, you learn what all the apostles would later learn. Blessed are those who believe and do not see. And so we say with our great example, Job, whose words we will hear on Easter and which day we look forward to during this Lenten season, I know that my Redeemer lives. And he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. How my heart yearns within me. In Jesus' name, amen. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.